the university is no longer taking, as far as the humanities and the social sciences are concerned, the universities, you will not find intellectual diversity. What you will find is a place where political correctness and radical Marxist, communist, socialist ideologies are rammed down the throat of our young people. Welcome to the Gary Scott Thomas Show. Here's what we know. The podcast with unexpected conversations. Listen each week as we engage in unscripted conversations where we'll be just as surprised as you will be with where the dialogue goes. So join us each week and be privy to the captivating conversations that are sure to ensue. Here's your host, Gary Scott Thomas. Welcome to the latest edition of Here's What We Know, the podcast of unexpected conversations. And I'm very excited to have Professor Jason Damian Hill on the phone with me today, live from Jamaica. You got to go home to Jamaica to see mom? I did. I took my mom a resort uh, vacation once a year because I get to escape the winter and I get so it's uh, it's wonderful. It's 85, it's 87 degrees. It's sunny. You know, you just you just realized the majority of my uh, my listeners right now have learned to hate you real quickly. That you're sitting there in Jamaica, it's sunny and 70, and you're trying to figure out what to wear to the beach today. <laughs> well, I think during the interview they'll come to love me, <laughs> especially when especially when they when they hear about my values and my. My love of America and all the, the wonderful things I think we're going to talk about. I so. know we're going to talk about that, but I have to ask you first and foremost, because this is one of the things that is just my go-to that I love to find out. You're home with mom. Tell me what is the best thing she makes. Oh, she makes jerk chicken and she makes um, oxtail, which is tail of ox, which is the tail of the cow. That is a delicacy here. You, you, you cut it into 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 fractions, and then you stew it, and it's it's really, I mean, the meat just falls off the bone, and she makes a delicious curried, curried mutton, which is goat, uh, and she makes great jerk chicken, which Americans are here just eating up. They can't get enough of it. It's really spicy, and... Um, She's a great cook, yeah. Here's my problem with you, Jason. I've seen pictures of you and you don't eat enough, right? You don't eat enough of mom's cooking. You need to you need to you need to put on a few <laughs> pounds before you come back to your job at DePaul. You know, my my goal is to gain every vacation I have a goal and I'm, I'm going to gain five pounds. And then when I get back to America I can I can take off. But for me I have a philosophy. Vacation is to gain weight, drink as much, eat as much as you can, you have at least a minimum of five pounds, and then you take it off and you go back. Wow. So. <laughs> That's a vacation goal. You know what I call that? Thursday. That's what I call that, Jason. <laughs> I can put five, I can put five pounds on my Thursday. Don't, don't even get me started. Now, you, you want to talk about, I, I love your story and, and it's so fascinating and, and, and we're going to get all over that. But man, do you, you need vacations. You need to slow the hell down. I have never seen, I don't know if I know anybody more prolific than you are. Oh, thank you. Oh, well, I write you with my, Teaching is my passion. Writing is my vocational calling. So, yeah, I just I pump out those books and those articles, and um, I just I have to. It's like breathing, you know, it gives me life. I just uh, 
Hey, have to keep doing it. See, um, now, I don't know because I'm an old English lit major, right? And there's the old joke that says every English lit major has a book inside of them, and that's where it should stay, right? So I, I've never, I love reading. I read voraciously, but the idea of being able to write still cramps my brain. And the fact that you have so many books, I'm not going to, I'm not even going to try to act like I know all of them, but uh, Jamaica Boy in Search of America, uh, Becoming a Cosmopolitan, Civil Disobedience and, and the Politics of Identity. And of course, the, the, the and we have overcome. And of course, his latest book that we're going to talk about here in just a minute. I mean, that's just a couple of them. That's not even the commentaries he writes for different publications and, and your scholarly writings. How in the world do you do you get the idea first? You set it out and map it out. What's the process like for you? Well, the thing is that I'm always teeming with ideas. I mean, I ever since I was like six years old, I've been reading, you know, Dickens and Dostoevsky and 800 page novels. So as far as I can remember myself, I've always had ideas. And what I do though is I decide, okay, I, I, is there something so compelling that I will not be able to sleep unless I say it? And then I decided this is going to be the topic of a book. And I bone up for about four years, really reading and thinking about it and doing a lot of research and reading tons of books and articles, very few of which make it into the book because I want my books to be accessible to a broad readership. And then I sit down and I write, and I write very quickly. I write about, I take me about six months to a year to write a book. And then I spent a lot of time revising it and rewriting it and putting it through different drafts. And then my editor, of course, cuts it to pieces. <laughs> and his editor cuts it to pieces. And the copy editor cuts it to pieces. So by the time the audience and the readers get uh, the book, it's a, it's a polished piece. But, but I really, you know, I, I have a lot of ideas. And then I, I, I say, which one is the most compelling? Which one is the one that's burning me up that I have to talk about? And that's, that's the, that's the criteria that I use for determining. I have about 15 books in my head right now. Um, I'm, I'm on the Did you just say 15? Did you, hold on. Did you just say 15 yeah. books in your head right now? Yeah, I do. I do. And I'm on the contract to write two more. Um, and I can't wait to get those two out, uh, so that I can start on the others, but, uh, but I, but I'm a, I'm a craftsman. You know, I, I, I spend a lot of time laboring over sentences and commas and semicolons and, cause I was a double major too in English and philosophy. So, um, but I have a lot of books inside of me. I just, I think there's so much that's going on in our world, um, Gary. And I think that there's so much about the human condition that, that, that needs to be articulated and, and articulated with nuance and with thought. And, um, and I love thinking and I love ideas and I love, you know, that's why I'm a teacher because I, I love sharing ideas and with my students and exploring ideas with my students. And, and quite often, a lot of the books come out of the conversations that I have with my students. They will ask me certain questions and I think, hmm, I never thought of that. That would make a good book topic. And, um, and there you go. You learn from your students, which is the wonderful thing about being a professor. Now, um, you, because you, you're not in this insulated. You say that, and and I want to say, yeah, because uh, Jason is Doctor Jason Hill at DePaul University, uh, a uh, and you uh, a professor of of uh, uh, philosophy, and that's where, boy, you want to talk about that? You better be good at what you do. 
if you're going to have a major like philosophy, all right? Because we all know the jokes. Half of, you know, you want to find a star, you want to find most philosophy majors, they'll make your coffee at Starbucks. For you to be able to succeed in that division means that, first of all, you have to think outside of the box. You have to, you have to bring something to the table that is not there in everyday life. And that's what you have done over and over again. And, and I want to bring into this because also in the world of academia, I'm going to state this off as we get into our conversation. Sir, you are fearless. You are absolutely fearless. And, and, and I, I read a little bit about you. I want to, I want to go down that vein to start off with. Where did you find the courage to speak your mind? Damn be the cost. Well, yeah, I come from a long line of intellectuals. My grandfather was put in a detention center by the British because he helped to boot them out of Jamaica. He was part of the independence movement. So when my father was born, he was in a concentration camp. I have a very uh, no-nonsense mother who told me, never accept, never sacrifice your convictions, never sacrifice your beliefs, your ideas, your search for the truth. My father is the same way. But I would say that I just don't have the courage to be a coward because I see the, the consequences all too much, which is a collapse of your integrity. And I have one litmus test. If I, if, when I look in the mirror each morning, my eyes can't meet my gaze. I'm in trouble. So the courage really comes from I'm not brave enough to be a coward because without my integrity, I wouldn't be able to get through the hard times. It's my integrity. It's my, my commitment to my convictions that keep me going through the rough times when I'm being canceled by my university, when I'm being reprimanded, when I'm being rebuked, um, when I'm being censured by my university formally for holding views outside, you know, received just them outside the, the orthodox positions. So the courage is not really an effort. Um, it's just, it's, it's a part of my temperament. It's, it's who I am as a person. Um, I just... I, I, that's why I became a philosopher. I, I like searching for the truth, and and I'll be damned if I will, you know, compromise in, in, in what I think is the truth. Um, I'm I'm going to so, write that down. I'm not courageous enough to be a coward. Wow, wow, <laughs> that. That's pretty deep, and, you know, and I'm talking to a philosophy professor, so that's, that is deep. I mean, because really, when you go through your story, in the world of identity politics, here you are. You are a, a black, gay, immigrant man who is not towing the party line of who you should be, according to folks on the left. And it must drive them absolutely bonkers that you have the courageous, uh, the, the courage, and I'm not trying to give anybody's uh, political thoughts, whatever, whatever your political thoughts are. If you're brave enough to defend them, I respect that. But the fact that you have this stuff and, and, and really they tell you that, you know, when I say they, it's usually the left that you have to say or talk a certain way. You, you just kind of blow this out of the water. I'm sure they don't even know what to do with you. They don't. When I say that I'm a great patriot of the, the most moral and the most, the, the, the greatest unprecedented republic in the world, the United States of America, when I say that I came here at 20 years old to America with $120 in my pocket, I worked four jobs with myself through school before I got a scholarship to do my PhD, and I did not find bigotry and intrinsic systemic racism. What I found 
was the benevolence of the American people, uh, a, a country full of opportunities, overflowing with opportunities, that I grabbed some of those opportunities. I didn't have a sense of entitlement. I didn't think the world or America owed me anything except a chance to make something of my life. There are people on the left who don't like that because they want you to be a victim. They want you to be a part of the aggrievement industry. And that's the reason I wrote this new book called, you know, What Do White Americans Owe Black People? Racial Justice in the Age of Oppression, because we live in an age of reparations, talk, and entitlement talk in which people think that white Americans owe black Americans something for the residual effects of slavery and everything, the disparity that exists between the races has to be because of racism, has to be because of slavery. And uh, we live in an age of Americophobia, and I just got really sick and tired of my beloved adopted country that I love so dearly just being destroyed mm-hmm. by by what I call Americophobia, Americophobia. And um, so I decided, you know, to write this, this last book, What Do White Americans Owe Black People, to, to, to explain where this nonsense is really coming from, to take the reparations argument seriously. But to answer your question, no, they don't like me saying this stuff because what they want me to do is to tell them a victim story, that I've been harmed by racism, that I'm psychologically scarred by it, that I've been, you know, held down by the white man. And quite the opposite, America has been, it has brought me where I am. It has brought me all the remarkable successes I've had in my life um, by simply me working hard and paying my dues and not being entitled, not having a sense of entitlement, and just being, and having gratitude. I must say, Gary, gratitude, you know, uh, because immigration is not a right; it's a privilege. And when when you when you are let into this country, you must show gratitude to the country and to the American people, and you must. You must give something of yourself to make the republic a better place, as opposed to thinking the republic is a horrible, imperialistic, intrinsically racist place. That my philosophy is quite the opposite. This Republic of America is a, is a benevolent, caring. It's not perfect, and there are racists, of course, and it's born with adverse effects. But it's always striving to become better. It's always striving to improve itself and to break within the crucibles of the ethical or the pantheon of the human domain, people who have been left out like blacks, like gays, uh, into the domain of the ethical. And that's the wonderful thing about this country. Well, I've I've had this conversation because I, I grew up in the sixties in South Alabama. Right. So I saw I saw racism up close and personal. It, it, it was it was not a yeah. it was not an abstract idea. It was something that was right there in front of my face. I had family members who were as virulently racist as you could possibly be. Uh, but in my lifetime, I have seen such a dramatic turnaround. I have seen so much improvement. And I've said this all along. Even the founding fathers at the time of the creation of the country knew that racism, that slavery was wrong. They knew it was wrong. There was a debate even back then, but they decided to go ahead and accept that sin with the idea that we would be better, that we would continue to be better as a, as a nation and a society. And I can just say for my own apocryphal experience, right? Just my view is that if you would have came up to me in 1979 and said, Hey, you think there'll be a black president in your lifetime? Uh, if you would have come up to me in 2000 and said, do you think there'll be a female president, vice president of color? In your lifetime, I have to step back and tell you, I would have told you, no, I hope so, but no, I, I can't see us changing that much. 
and look at it's it's the true reality of how much we have changed. The fact that we can have these conversations, the fact that you can get on and 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 pretty much spout anything you want to about the police. You really can. And you're not going to have any repercussions, whether it's factual or unfactual. You can, which is a try try that in Cuba. See what happens. Go to Cuba today and try that and, and see where you end up. Just see. And, and I know I've said this all along. I know we have room for improvement. We will always have room for improvement, but to deny, to compare America today for any minority to America from 19 in my lifetime, 1965 is, is disingenuous at best and incredulous on its face. What's your thoughts? That's right. That's right. We, that's right. And the, 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 I agree with you completely. Look, we have evolved. We have changed. And this is a remarkable thing about America. When you look at civilizations like ancient Egypt that remained stagnant for 1,000 years, when you look at the Ying dynasties, I studied ancient civilizations and, civiliz- and civilizations in general. This is a hobby. I am surprised when you look at European civilizations that remain stagnant. Look at how far, Gary, we have come in 248 years. It is unprecedented in human history, not just technologically speaking. I'm talking about in terms of bringing rights, discovering. I don't say cre- I don't say creating because rights are not created; they're endowed to us by God. Discovering the rights that are inalienable to all people and bestowing on those individuals their rights. We have come a far way. This is not Mississippi circa 1950. Today, I would go even further and say that blacks are the new sacred symbols in our culture where we live in such a progressive society where people are bending over backward to bring blacks into positions of leadership, to bring blacks into positions of opportunities and into opposition, positions of, of, of creativity in all endeavors, whether it's sports, education, entrepreneurship. Um, and anyone who thinks that this is we have not evolved, deserve to find out the really hard way. Um, in the last five years alone, I can tell you as a university professor, I have seen where there is a direct mission, agenda, almost a crusade to bring blacks on campuses, not just on my universities, but on my university, but on all universities to recruit. If you're, especially if you're a black male, you're considered almost like an endangered species. If you have a C average and you're a black male, you are insured a position on an average American university today. So the idea that we haven't changed, that we have not progressed, that Americans haven't changed their sensibilities. One thing that has struck me, Gary, after having lived in Atlanta for eight years, when I came to America, I lived in Atlanta for eight years, from 1985 to 1993, is that there aren't Americans today with full forethought of malice who want to sabotage the life plans of black Americans. You, you know, so mm-hmm. in the 1960s, the 40s, the 30s, you might, you, you would have found racist whites who would have deliberately set out to create policies, deliberately set out to sabotage the life plans of black Americans. I do not think that the majority of white Americans with full forethought of matters, have ill-intentioned will 
against blacks and want to sabotage their lifetimes. Quite the opposite. Most Americans of every hue want to see other Americans succeed. This is something that sets America apart from other cultures. We, as Americans, we like to see each other succeed. We like to see each other flourish and thrive. And I think that same ethos, as an immigrant, I've seen it from white Americans who are remarkably proud that I came here with so little and have achieved so much. I don't detect envy. I don't detect hostility. What I detect is great pride that America, they adduce America as evidence that it's, they use my success as evidence of America's remarkability, of America's generosity. So things have changed and things have evolved. Well, we, we celebrate, we celebrate those success stories, right? I mean, we still denigrate the people who are born in the silver spoon in their mouth. All right. Yeah. Your daddy got you that. Yeah. Th- this is where that at the, the idea that you would come here, as you said, from Jamaica with $120 in your pocket. But I will say this. You had a plan. Even at the age of 20, you had a plan. And, and, and I was, I was reading about you and you said you succeeded before your timetable was up, you, you had you had accomplished almost everything you had wanted to do before the timetables were there, and it's that as as Anne Ryan would say, and I know there's a you're, you're a big uh, a, a big proponent of rugged individualism, but but the fact that you decided you didn't need anything else other than your own your own initiative the the own your own temerity and ideas uh i i I remember during the whole trayvon martin thing when barack obama said i could have been trayvon martin and and my first thought was no you couldn't you you lived a life of you're going to try you're going to try to excel you're going to try to do the best you're going to you're going to try to follow the rules you're going to try to to work within the 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 society and your president, that's, that's what you were. You were never near where that was. You were never near that situation that even you, you know, it, it was like he was downplaying his own hard work. And I'm like, we're in, what in the world are we doing? Well, this is part of the microphone, Gary. This is part of when Barack Obama started, you know, preaching, apologizing for American exceptionalism, preaching soft power, leading from behind. It became a time where America lost its direction, lost its purpose, lost its mission, lost its capacity to inspire people. There was a time when the, the, the name of America inspired both fear, love, and admiration. People pin their aspirational identities on America. And I don't know what, well, I do know what has happened, but, and, and it's quite horrible, which is one of the reasons I wrote this book to try to enlighten people and give them a sense of inoculation against how to fight this Americophobia. Um, but yes, Barack Obama could not have been Trayvon Martin. He grew up in a quite privileged household and anthropo- a mother was an anthropologist and, uh, you know, he, he grew up in a, you know, quite privileged circumstances. Um, but I did have a plan and I never straight from that plan and I, had a vision for my life. I wanted to accomplish something quite remarkable for my life. And one of the things that I hope I can do with my life is to turn just by example, is to show by example that this country is a remarkably great country, that it is not, people should stop buying into this narrative that America is a mean-spirited, horrible, intrinsically bigoted place. Um, it used to be a place that was hostile to the interest of minorities, it's no longer the case. 
it's made a complete turnaround and um it 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 really breaks my heart to see the American phobia that young people in the generation of my students who say that, you know, we should abolish the Constitution, that the Constitution is dated, that it's inimical to the interests of people of color, uh, who know nothing about the civil rights movement, who know nothing about when there was a time when this country was, was quite inimical to the interests of people of color, and things have changed. I, 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 the fact that you're a professor, right? And, and as you said earlier, your own university trying to cancel you and stuff like this. You have, uh, especially there, there's a certain way you're expected to talk and teach. And, and let's be clear. If this was true, uh, if people on the right were doing this to people also, right? Uh, because I, I tend to fight the finger myself more as a moderate, but if I would be just as outraged, I was, I, you know, the universities are supposed to be a place of ideas. It's supposed to be a place where you can talk about anything and everything and a free exchange. But now there is a code of conduct, an unspoken code of conduct that you can only preach what is socially acceptable at that moment. And, you know, if you were, if you were to go by those standards, then, you know, uh, th- th- it would be littered with horrible statements by professors, and it is. To now, we don't have any way of judging you because nobody can talk about anything. How how have you braved those slings and arrows? And are is your status? I, I assume you're tenured. Is your status at DePaul not in jeopardy? Well, I am tenured. I have four lawsuits against my university. Really. Um, <laughs> Yes, I do. Um, I am fully tenured and I'm an honored distinguished professor there. But, um, I think our universe is, well, how I survived it by realizing the kind of institutional psychosis and cultural psychosis that we're going through. Uh, our universities, first of all, have become national security threats because they're no longer learning centers. They're bastions of indoctrination centers where they induct uh, students into left-wing Marxist ideology and do not give conservative viewpoints or allow rejoinders or counterfactuals to be issued or any kind of competition of ideas. Let's just call it the, 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 the university is no longer taking the, as far as the humanities and the social sciences are concerned. The universities, you will not find intellectual diversity. What you will find is a place where political correctness and radical Marxist, communist, socialist um, ideologies are rammed on the throat of our young people. So I survived it by realizing that I'm up against a war, a cultural, a cultural war. Universities are national security threats, that much of what passes as reality is really mass psychosis. And when you perceive reality, when you take objective reality seriously, when you take reason and logic, as your tools of perceiving and adjudicating among truth claims and appraising truth claims, I find it very easy to remain sane. I get terribly depressed. I'm not politically depressed, not psychologically depressed, but I find it easy to to maintain my sanity and my my upbeat spirit and my my optimism because I realize that I'm dealing with a form of psychosis. You know, I get canceled when I say something like a biological male should not be allowed to compete on a team with biological females and I get canceled for that or I get reprimanded for that. Um, something as simple as saying that you can't change the chromosomal markers that you're assigned with at birth, therefore you can't change your sex. 
Um, that just seems like common sense to me. So uh, we, we're living in very, very strange times, and we're living in times in which the sensibilities of our students are being re-socialized to think of America as this horrible place um, when the students themselves are the beneficiaries of all those gifts of capitalism, of the free market enterprise, of the, the wonderful constitution that we have, free speech. They themselves are attacking free speech and are, are silencing free speech. So seeing all of this and putting it in perspective and putting it in historical perspective, also seeing the tumultuous sixties, which seemed as if it would have ripped the country apart. And we got through it. It gives me some sense of hope and optimism that common sense will prevail. Because I tell you what, Gary, Americans, I have learned in 36 years of living here, are problem solvers. They fix stuff. And I think the average American is not going to sit back and watch this country being torn apart by cancer culture, by wokeism. Um, Americans are problem solvers. We fix things. We don't sit down and endlessly theorize like these welfare scholars in the universities who have nothing better to do but pen unreadable books. Um, we, 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 Americans fix things. We are problem solvers. Wow. Really? And, um, and, and, the, and it, it, it's the average American. It's the average. It's, a, it's the janitors. It's the people who scale the skyscrapers and clean the windows. It's the people who, who clean up the mess of Western civilization. Those are the people who give me hope, and those aren't my heroes, actually. Um, the, the average common sense-making American who will fix this country. You know, and that's and that's the, the that's the interesting ironic dichotomy, if you will, the fact that the people who you would expect to be the the Marxist, if you would, the working class, uh, you know, the the ones who are, are getting out there and doing all the 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 hard work, who and traditionally that's who your grandfather as a communist would have appealed to. It's actually the upper middle class who are going to college, the upper class who are espousing things to literally, it, it's suicidal, really, if you. Think about it. We're, we're going to go down that road here in just a second. After a quick break, we're going to come right back with Joseph Damien Hill, and we'll find out his takes. Is America systemically racist? We're coming back with Here's What You Know with Joseph Damien Hill, J- Jason Damien Hill. I apologize for that. Right after this. If you're enjoying this podcast, then maybe you'd like to hear more. Gary Scott Thomas hosts the morning show at 95.3 KRTY in San Jose, and you can tune in at krty.com. At 8.30 each weekday morning, Gary and Julie talk to artists, songwriters, and industry insiders. You'll hear from people like Garth Brooks and Luke Combs, new stars like Ingrid Andrus and Maren Morris, and songwriters like Shane McAnally, Lori McKenna, and Luke Laird. You'll find the best in country music on the South Bay's best country, krty.com Jason as we were saying right before the break that you know it's it's funny that it's the working class who have no interest in voting to the left it's the it's you know and and there's been political debates of why is it the democratic party reaching these people the people who you should be reaching with with uh universal um, not only health care but income and and all of these different identity politic things you really you, the numbers the numbers for them are going down in voting but yet the as you call it the liberal white supremacy uh, it continues to go is that just based out of guilt what's What's your take on that? Well, I, I think what happens is that 
American working class people realize that they're very independent minded people going back to the period before welfare uh, arose in this country. There are proud independent people who believe do not like to have their agents expropriated by a managerial left-wing class, first of all. So you can't find a more prideful, dignified set of people than the, 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 the working class citizens of this country who do not even think of themselves as poor. They just properly think of themselves, I'm not yet rich or I'm not yet well-to-do. So they don't, by nature, have a victim mentality. And so when the left comes along and preaches this doctrine of aggrievement and victimology, they, they find it quite insulting to their dignity. Um, and they're not, uh, many of them are just not buying into it. And they don't buy into the idea that they're voting against their own economic interests because they know that high taxation of small businesses and high taxation of corporations in general are inimical to their interests. Because if you tax small businesses, which are the backbone of this country, not the Amazon and not the Walmart, but it's the small businesses that are the backbone that, that's keeping this, the backbone of the American economy. The, the average working class person knows that when you tax these businesses to death, that their livelihood uh, is at stake. So they know that sound economic policies will result in fewer taxes for the business, for the, for the, for the small businesses, which will open up opportunity employment opportunities for them. They also know that outsourcing, um, and the loss of industry, uh, is something that has to be taken quite seriously, but it has to be taken quite seriously, seriously by certain policies that the left itself is not the exclusive monopoly of the left. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a policy that, it, these are policies that have to be pro-American policies that appeal across the board to all classes of people. So when the left tries to sort of single out the working class as a subset of Americans that are in need of special protection, I think most people on the left most people that I find it quite insulting and quite demeaning and evisitive of their dignity. Hmm. They view themselves not as poor, just not yet rich. I love that. I, yeah. I, I, I love that. That is such a, and that is the quintessential optimistic American view that I think all of us grew up with, right? You really, I mean, you, you nailed exactly. it. I, I grew up poor and I see I grew up desperately poor, but I never thought I was going to stay there. You know, it was, exactly. it was always that, it was always the journey. That's the whole thing. And I, I will, cause I, I promised this before the break. I was going to ask you, when I hear America is systemically racist, my thing is, is I don't know if people who are saying that even knows what it means. I'll open that question to you. I don't think they know what it means. To say that America is systemically racist would mean that there are racist policies that suffuse, that infuse, suffuse, imbue, use whatever word you want to call it, every single institution in our country, that there are systemic policies that deliberately target minorities to keep them outside the sphere of opportunities, to keep them outside the sphere of um, employment, that's what 
when something is systemically racist, when some, something is systemically anything, it means that it is embedded in institutions as policy. That is the, a case of a big lie if there ever was one. Quite the opposite. You can be sued because of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the 1972 Employment Act, and the subsequent amendments to the 64 Civil Rights Act. You can be sued for being a racist in this country. So, the ideal, you can be sued for being a racist. Mm-hmm. The 1964 Civil Rights Act made it impossible for white people to be racist in the public sphere. You cannot use your business as an extension of your living room anymore and say, I don't want to employ, I don't want to hire Jews or I don't want to choose or blacks or women or anybody to, to sit at my lunch counter. It made it illegal. So the idea that America is still, it used to be systemically racist. We had laws. And we had a civil rights act that made that moot. So I think these people are just spouting this stuff mindlessly because they think they want to be on the right side of history, because they're mindless, they're mindlessly doing it. But more importantly, because it gives them some kind, it's virtue signaling, right? It makes them seem virtuous against those who seem to have a course of monopoly on victimology or in victimhood. I, I see the uh, and you see it in the media. You see it, you know, uh, on a lot where you'll see them sp- spout systemically racist. And, and my thing has always been, no, it's not. And it, just because, you know, there are laws to keep. There's nothing in the law. There's there's no laws that allows racism. And if it is, it tends to get sued and overturned. What what you're trying to do is legislate thought. And you're never going to get rid of the pockets of racists. There are always going to be pockets in no. every community, whether it's whether it's Latin or black or Chinese or Korean or there's always going to be racist in every one of those. You cannot legislate thought, but you can legislate law that everybody has applied equally. And 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 those get so smeared by the media, it's just jaw-dropping. Exactly. Exactly. So exactly. And, and when you when you wrote your, wrote your book, uh, What Do White People Owe Black People? What what is it with you're trying to convey with that book? What's what's your because listen, I love the way you write. It's just it's it's just such a confluence of ideas that make logical sense. One thing on the next thing on the next thing, instead of just these bleh, ideas and then going back. I love how you build on it. What is your thoughts? My thought was, Gary, that reparation is making its way throughout this country. It's making its way throughout Congress. Gavin Newsom has passed a lot of reparation laws in California. It's going to be a very divisive phenomenon in this country that is going to rip uh, race relations in America. And I wanted to show the connection between critical race theory, cancer culture, and reparation. And I wanted to show... History books are going to love this book because I wanted to show a couple of things that reparations were in the making, and this is very controversial, from the founding of this country, from the 1776 uh, Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, the second founding, which was Lincoln's Gettysburg Address and the Civil War, and the third great founding, the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And I show how the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the subsequent affirmative action programs, Black Studies programs and, and, and so on and so forth, the 1972 Employment Act, all of these were reparative gestures uh, 
that have been made, reparations have been made to blacks. And I wanted to inoculate both blacks and whites against this very nefarious idea that everything disparity, every single asymmetry that exists between the races is reducible to systemic racism or is a residual effect of, of slavery. I wanted to show that there are certain pathologies in the black community like the fact that 74% of African-American children are born out of wedlock, and about 70% of that, those births are causally, are, are correlative to poverty and crime. This, this is not a cause of racism. It is not white people are going to these black communities and impregnating uh, black women. And I want to show how this all started from Lyndon Johnson's uh, war on poverty, where black women, the, the state became the surrogate husband or the surrogate spouse of black women, and black fathers were disincentivized from taking care of their children. So it's a, it's a, I think the book is a historical journey that will take the reader on um, um, a, a, a showcase of, of displaying how the reparations movement started and how to defeat it, how to show that. I want, to, I, I want this book to really put an end to this notion that whites owe blacks reparations. So I really wrote the book to show that the aggrievement industry is alive and well in America and that we ought to put a stop to it. It is utterly un-American. We're not a culture of aggrievement or entitlement. And we are shame on us because that is not the American way. And and if we do go down that road, I mean, how do you determine? I mean, you're you're black, but you weren't you didn't grow up in this country. Do they owe you money? What about Kamala Harris? Her father was from India, but you know she's legally classified as as a minority. Does she get money? I mean, I mean it, it's 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 mind boggling when you go down. And then how much money? Who gets how much money? What what, what? I I have no idea. But it sounds good to throw that out and go. Well, you as we've said, the nuclear the destruction of the nuclear family to me has been one of society's great ills. And that's not just minorities. You look at you look at poverty numbers right. for for anybody for any minority and 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 Caucasians anybody. Uh, it's it's. The, the, the poverty numbers are crazy. And then if you sit back and look at the other thing, that if you wait till 26 to have children, the age of 26 to have children, there's like an 80, I want to I want to say it's close to 80% chance that that child will never live in poverty. And if you're, if you're a black man or woman who wait till after 26, the, the numbers are even higher that your children won't live in poverty. Yet we never, we never hear that. We never bring that up. Yeah, it's true. It's true. The statistics. Well, people hide. People use statistics very selectively to show, you know, like to to show to prove what they want to prove, uh, to the very disingenuous of 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 faith in reality. But um, are we are uh, we teaching kids a false narrative? Uh, And I'm and I and I mean that 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 especially you know that that they're always in danger from all authority, not just law enforcement. And you know, it's one thing for minorities. I think every child is being told that now. I think even white kids think that they need to, you know, either question authority that the police going to do something to them or whatever. Is, is, is that just me or do you see do you see any legitimacy in that? And feel free to tell me that I'm bonkers. 
No, I think you're right. I think not only are they being fed false narratives, that is, narratives that are just empirically untenable, they go against the facts. But, Gary, what's more dangerous is that the means to question these narratives, critical thinking, logic, reason, are being criminalized as the constructs of racist white European imperialists. Math and science now are even classified as being racist. Everything is racist. Argumentation is racist. Uh, logic is racist. Reason is a construct of, 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 of racist. So the narratives themselves are not only false, but we have criminalized the very means to debate among ourselves the legitimacy of these narratives. There was a time where we, we could say reasonable people could have reasonable disagreements, or you would put forth a narrative, and the student would be equipped with a skill. I mean, I remember when I swore, I've been a professor for 25 years now. I would put, when I would teach Marx, they thought I was a Marxist. When I would teach Aristotle, they thought he's an Aristotelian. When I teach, you know, Locke, they think, I'm a, because I never politicized my classroom, and I would give them critical thinking skills. And I'd say, okay, now evaluate the argument of Marx, evaluate the argument of von Mises, evaluate the argument of Plato, you know, who has the best argument? You actually give the students the skills to defeat everything or to question everything that you've taught them. This has changed. We're pushing a narrative down their throat, and we're, we're, keep, we're telling them that these narratives are unquestionably true. If you question them, you get canceled, you get punished, so you can lose your job, um, you can be suspended. And then, if you dare to question the, the narratives by using the traditional means that we use, uh, you're called a racist, or you're using the language of the oppressor. This is the madness that is taking over this country, uh, and our, 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 it's not just in universities, it's in the corporations now. I mean, there's wokeness in the corporations that you wouldn't believe. I mean, you, you, cannot, you cannot say certain things to a person of color because um, if you admire a person of color, uh, the hairstyle of a person of, person of color and you're white, um, you can be called a racist. And you can be dismissed. There was a black professor who got fired two weeks ago because two black students came into his class late and he, he got their names mixed up. They got offended and he was fired. Wow. And he had tenure. And he had tenure. Man. So this, we, we, you know, we're living some, through some crazy times. But again, my, my, all, my hope always comes back. Americans are very common sense people and it's the average American. It's not the welfare scholars. It's not the, you know, what I call the cognoscenti, the super, super intellectual people, because they're the ones propagating this nonsense. It's going to be the average American who's going to say, I'm, you know, like my first generation Eastern European parents or Polish or Russian, um, immigrants who are sending their kids to school, paying a lot of money, working for jobs. They're the ones who are going to wake up and say, when their children can't get jobs, they're the ones who are going to say, enough, enough of this nonsense, you know. Uh, it's the average mom who realizes that her child comes home and her child is being told by the school, tell your mother and your father not to gender you at home because we will not be gendering you in the classroom, trying to create distrust between the parents. When, parent, when children start turning against their parents at home because 
the way they're being socialized in the classroom. This is Stalinist. This is straight out of Stalin because the, and Fidel Castro's regime because the, the, the socialization of the children in the classroom pits them against the values of their parents. It's those parents who are going to say, we're going to see a revolution, not a violent one. We're going to see a cultural revolution spearheaded by these commonsensical parents who are going to say, I didn't send my child to school for him or her to turn against the value that I have taught my child from they were a kid, you know, a young kid. Um, yeah, I, I see. I see. I see some some avenues of hope. Uh, you know, my one of my favorite phrases, and my friends and family will tell you, is nothing ever turns out the way you think it will. Right? Almost all of all of history's big moments started off as something else completely, uh, and 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 drugs, and no matter what, you know, every the Prozac started off as a sleeping pill. You know, I mean, every you know the erectile dysfunction, dysfunction came. You know, the ED d- d- pills started off as something else, and then they saw it as a side effect. So it's my thing is nothing ever turns out the way you think it will. So in the age of COVID, with everybody in, in, in worried about why are our kids who are literally not at risk, why are we making them wear masks, you know, the entire school day? I bring this up simply because more parents started paying attention to school board meetings. And it's not the mass that they're being shocked by. It's what you're saying, the indoctrination. And it's going to be interesting that it's the that it's the COVID that 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 really got more parents aware of the indoctrination that's happening in amongst second, third, fourth, fifth graders. That is shocking that we don't know. People just send their kids off to school and they don't think about them. They have to pick them up at three o'clock. I mean, as, as sad as that sounds, it's true uh, that there are a lot of folks who just, you know, you know, they're 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 on their way and, and I'll be back. And you don't see it until it's too late, until all of a sudden you have a 16 year old Marxist telling you that that you're, you know, the proletariat and all the other stuff. I, it's going to be interesting. I I see glimmers of hope in that, you know? I do, too. I do, too. It's going to be a long haul, but we can never give up on the fact that this country was not built by... This country was built by America's first and last intellectuals, the founding fathers. But the bedrock, the backbone of this country, you know, the entrepreneurs, the small businessmen, uh, those are the individuals, the common sense can do people, uh, are the, are the architects of this country. They have not intellectuals, um, who contribute very little to this, to the, you know. Ayn Rand once said that the American businessman has raised the standards of living enormously while the intellectuals have reduced it to the level of a savage. Um, <laughs> I thought that was. <laughs> You know, you know what I also find hope in is in the age of social media that we can all find abhorrent and distasteful. But again, going back to nothing ever happens the way you think it will. Currently, as of today on the day we're talking, one of the things I saw, I don't know if you saw the Sarah Silverman story. Did you did you hear about this uh, kerfuffle? Let me, let me share. Let me share with you. She's a, she's a comedian and she's very, very left wing. Very, very, very left wing. Well, but she does her best to try to be aware of both, both sides. So, so Joy Reid, who's a commentator on MSNBC and just happens to be a black female, did this story or did this tweet about Ron DeSantis doing something where they were doing something with the National Guard, which, oh, by the way, 22 other states also do it, but they tried to make it act like Ron DeSantis is doing the SS. He's creating he's creating a, an SS 
you know, that he's going to take over and it's all going to be Nazis and Hitler. And the only thing Sarah Silverman tweeted was, you're, this, this story doesn't help. Please read the entire article. What, look at both sides, you know, and that's it. Just, just make, make yourself aware of the entire story, not the soundbite. Whereupon she got criticized and she was flabbergasted because the ladies on the view accused her of being racist because she attacked a black woman. No, you see, you see the, the, the good thing is, is the, 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 the resurrection, the insurrection, I should say, always comes from within because they start eating their young. Uh, Castro didn't kill his enemies to start off with. He killed the people around him, right? <laughs> And, and so it's, right. it's going to be interesting to see now that you're seeing the, you're seeing the Bill Mars who were traditionally very left. You're seeing the Trevor, Trevor Noah's getting pushback when he dares not tow the company line. And, and then you see the growth of the Joe Rogan podcast and stuff where people, people are looking for alternative balanced forms. I find I find a lot of hope in that. I think and and the fact that you're here. You and I are getting to have this conversation. I I find I find so much hope and aspiration in that. How about you? I do too. And I think this is why we can never lose hope because when when you think that there's a, a monolithic position on any one given topic, you know, we look at Jordan Peterson, we look at Joe Rogan, we look at podcast which is yours. Um, we have to we have to bear in mind that American culture is very nuanced. It's very diverse. It's very complicated, and things never turn out the way we think they will. The math were the the, the factors that gave rise to parents paying attention to what was being said in school. I find I find limited hope in that, in the sense that if you listen to CNN exclusively, the Fox exclusively. You become something of a kind of like an apocalyptic thinker. Over the world, the end of the Roman Empire, you know, the world will fall tomorrow. But um, if you, if you, I like to listen to to average Americans. I like to listen to to talk radio, uh, old-fashioned talk radio. And uh, you know, like I said, my heroes are are the people who clean up the mess of Western civilization. You know, the janitors, the custodian of my building, the, the, the men who tar the streets, and the the guys who scale the skyscrapers and clean the dirty windows. The people who do the the, the dirt of the, the hard work of cleaning up civilization. Those are the those are the people who who we ignore and we think are stupid. But those are people who are the common sensical people who are going to say, no, we're not going to put up with this. You know, we're not we're not going to bang with this woke ideology. We're not we're we're, we're no. And um, so I think what I call the silent majority will wake up eventually when they've had enough. Americans are also quite tolerant and patient in many respects. Um, and that's part of their <laughs> benevolence, I think, and that they're open to so many conceptions of existing and of the good life and of people. They're tolerant. It's a tolerant society. It's, and it's going to be more tolerant. But when that tolerance gives way to a kind of totalitarianism, you know, I need to push my viewpoint on you, and if you don't adhere to it, then I'm going to fire you. I'm going to punish you. I'm going to criminalize your identity. Uh, I think Americans are just going to rise up and say, this is we've had enough. And um, it'll take a while, but I think we'll get there. 
I think we're in an overcorrection uh, era right now, right? I mean, you go through the 60s and 70s, what I, I grew up in, and, and and the overt racism. And now we're trying to push back against it, which is not a bad thing. So we're doing it, but we're going too far. And I think the pendulum will swing back. I agree with you. I think the, the pendulum will swing back as average Americans who become aware, because let's be clear, most Americans, most citizens aren't aware because your day is your day. You're trying to get the kids up, get them fed, get the trash out, you know, do what you need to do. All the million things that we all face each day. It's so easy to you focus on the micro and you don't see the macro. But I think as the macro starts to intrude more and more on daily life, I do see that balance coming back. How about you? I think it'll come back. I agree with you. I think that Americans are going to have to suffer a little bit more because um the progressivism in this country has gone into overdrive. And I think that's part of liberalism, uh, Gary. I think part of liberalism is that everybody gets led to the future, which is a good thing. But the vetting process that needs to take place when we let people into the future um, has been a little lax. And by that, I mean just the very democratization of any process means that standards are lowered. And when standards are lowered... Um, the least, the lowest common denominator element sometimes prevails. And we're seeing that right now where, you know, reason is criminalized, logic is criminalized because we have a bunch of thugs and hooligans who have invaded our universities, intellectuals and minds and students, um, who want power and who want to impose their ideology on other people. Um, so I think Part of what's going to happen is that we're going to have to close ranks a little bit and start excluding, rationally excluding certain people from, I call it rational discrimination. And I don't mean it in the racial sense. I mean it in the value sense. That is, who are we as Americans? What do we really value? Um, and my next book is going to be called Leading in the Midst of Chaos, Creating America's New Manifest Destiny, because I do think we need a new manifest destiny. Uh, in terms of deciding who we are as a people, how do we go forward, how do we lead, and um, and how do we close ranks by sort of evicting from the realm of not the human community, but from the, those who get to create narratives, whether it's media, whether it's uh, professors, whomever. We, 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 we find ways of giving a greater voice Part of my mission is to give a greater voice to conservatives and people who are pro-America and, and, and to have, have, have their voices form part of the mainstream narrative in this country. And, um, we know that the media dominates, listening to the dominates the narratives quite often. So it's a long answer I'm giving you, but I think it's going to be a long, long haul. And I think that, um, we can't fight the battle just culturally. You know, we need comics, we need comedians, we need we need we need to conservatives also need to make inroads into Hollywood. And um we need them on we need them on stage also. We need it's not just intellectuals that can fight this battle. Um and we need to just have honest conversations with people without assuming the worst. Because what I found is that a lot of people are just ignorant about what's going on in this country and they're just they're assuming that the worst among us um, are good people when some of them are really not good people. So I found that 
just approaching people with compassion and a sense of understanding, people with whom I, my adversaries, and then telling them the truth, telling them, giving them the facts. And if they reject it, well, they reject it. But I find that a lot of people are just, as you said, they're just, they're clueless. They're, they're, they're confused. They're busy with their days. They have children. They have careers. And they're caught up in this vortex of craziness, and they don't really know how to how to combat it. Um, and so it's it's for people like such as myself and you and and, and others who can can have the patience to sort of talk about these things fearlessly, but also without rancor and without bitterness. And we must have a sense of we must have a sense of humor as well. Um, I still go crazy. You know, you have to find a little bit. <laughs> Amen. One has to find humor. <laughs> Amen. One will go crazy. I absolutely agree. <laughs> Dr. Jo- Jason D. Hill, Damien Hill. I have so enjoyed this conversation, and I would like to ask you to come, because there's so many things I want to go down with you. I want to go down with, like, how do we fix the universities? How do we, how do, how do you find the courage to, to, to stand up for your own things? How do you get the slings and arrows? How much of social media should you concern yourself with, and how little should you concern? There's so many other things I want to talk to you about, including your new book. I would hope that you'd come back and have another conversation with me. I'd be delighted. Thanks for joining us this week. If you loved this episode, please subscribe, download a few more episodes, and please leave a review. Reviews really help us get this out to more people like you. Also, we'd love to hear what your favorite part was. Be sure to join us on social media to engage in even more unexpected conversations. Until next time.